I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become, and are still, like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Because of his sin, every individual that has come from the loins of Adam, or we could say mankind as one united whole, is cut off from God. The Bible tells us that God is life. So to be cut off from God is to be cut off from life. And so if you're cut off from life, that's called dead. We are cut off from God because of our sin. The, God, the, the Word of God says that we are conceived and brought forth from the womb, quote, dead in the trespasses and sins, end quote. That's our natural condition, the, the natural condition of the entire human race. Because of our sin, cut off from God. Dead. Now in order to remedy this problem, death must be overthrown. Death must be conquered. Death must be rendered powerless. And that's what happened in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He conquered death. He defeated it. He overthrew death. Death was shown in His resurrection. Death was shown to be powerless over Christ and over all who belong to Christ. But before He could rise from the dead, He had to die. Right? You can't rise from the dead if you're not first dead. So He had to die. Jesus Christ then had to die. But in dying, death did not overcome Him. He overcame death. That's the difference between the man Christ Jesus and all of us. When He touches the leper, He doesn't get leprosy. The leprosy gets healed. When death touches Him, He's not overcome by death. Death gets conquered. That's what happened when He died. He did not succumb to old age or sickness or even the... the physical afflictions of the crucifixion, He yielded up His life after suffering the public agonies of the Roman cross. So you see the logic here. In order to execute victory over death, death being our problem, we're dead in sins, in order to overcome death, He rises from the dead. But in order to rise from the dead, you have to first die. That's what He did. But others had come back from the dead before him, right? Lazarus came back from the dead, but Lazarus is no savior. Others died on the Roman cross. Neither of the two thieves that were crucified with Jesus are our savior. So there must be something different about this one man in the fact that when he died and he rose from the dead, that renders or uh, achieves our salvation, that accomplishes our salvation. The resurrection of the man Jesus from the dead would have had no power over death if it were not for who He was. 
We might say he was special. Even the horrible scene of the crucifixion and death of Jesus would not have been sufficient to save a single sinner. It would not have been a a sufficient sacrifice for sins if it were not for who he was. He was special. Speaking appropriately, we ought to say he is special. Jesus is special. As we heard last Lord's Day evening, this Jesus is God in human flesh. The God who created the heavens and the earth. The God who hung the stars and filled the oceans. The God who upholds all things every moment by the word of His power. The God who walked with Adam, drowned the whole world in a flood, scattered men at Babel, called Abraham and destroyed Sodom, wrestled with Jacob, spoke from the burning bush, parted the Red Sea, thundered at Sinai, the one who said to Moses, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. That God, in the person of the Son, while never ceasing to be who He is from everlasting to everlasting, began to be what He was not by assuming the nature of a man. As John tells us, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. That's a long way of saying He's special. He's not like Lazarus. He's not like the thief on the cross. He's special. Now, just for the sake of meditating on this mystery of mysteries, listen to these statements from Athanasius as he wrote in the 4th century. The Word was not hedged in by His body, nor did His presence in the body prevent His being present elsewhere as well. When He moved His body, He did not cease also to direct the universe by His mind and might. Existing in a human body, to which He Himself gives life, He is still the source of life to all the universe, present in every part of it, and yet outside the whole. His body was for Him not a limitation, but an instrument, so that He was both in it and in all things, and outside all things, resting in the Father alone. At one and the same time, this is the wonder, as man He was living a human life, and as the Word He was sustaining the life of the universe, and as Son He was in constant union with the Father. End quote. This is, this is the one we're talking about. Hopefully, hopefully your mind is expanding. What a person. What a person. What an individual. That's the one that we're talking about when we refer to Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That one. The Word was not hedged in by His body as it hung on the cross. His presence on the cross did not prevent His being present elsewhere. When He would lift up His body for a gasp of air on the cross, He was also upholding the universe by the Word of His power. And as He yielded up His life... He also continued to be the source of life to all the universe, present in every part of it, and yet outside the whole. And yet, He was no less the man Jesus than you or I are who we are. When we we begin to parse out the, the mysterious unity of the divine and human nature in the Son of God, very often we act like this is that there's, there's the Son of God plus a body. I am not me plus a body. I am me, my body and my soul. That's who I am. You are not you plus a body. Your body is who you are. Our physical bodies are who we are. We're, we're spirit and body or, or body and soul. And so it was with the man Christ Jesus. He's not God the Son plus a body. The person of the divine Son, very God of very God, assumed the nature of the man, or of a man, so that two natures come together personally, really, and inseparably, so that the Son of God is the man Christ Jesus. It's not the Son of God plus 
a body or plus the man part. No, this is who he is. So it's not inappropriate to say that the man on the cross is the Son of God. The man being mocked and spit upon and jeered at and beaten is God the Son. The King of kings and Lord of lords hung with nails in His hands and feet and a crown of thorns upon His head naked and humiliated before the eyes of devils and men. Who was that? That's the Son of God. Well, I thought you said it was the man Christ Jesus. That is correct. But I thought it was Jesus of Nazareth. You are right. But is it not the eternal Word? Yes, it is. That's who He is. We, because He's God, death had no power over Him. Because He's God, His death saves us. Because He's God, His resurrection saves us. It's infinite condescension is what we say. That one so high and lofty that we cannot comprehend, we cannot describe Him. That one came down to this place that when we think about or imagine Him being on the cross, we can't understand it. How can this be the Son of God? How can that be the eternal Word of God? It's a mystery. But Paul describes this infinite condescension when he says, and we read this last Lord's Day. He says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, what was Paul's purpose in saying that? Why did Paul say that in, in Philippians chapter 2? What was he teaching? He was not giving a lecture on theology proper. He was not giving a lecture on Christology. Why did he say that? Well, if you look at the context, he said that so that the Philippians and we would have this mind among ourselves. So that we would look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. So that in humility, we would count others more significant than ourselves. His, his application is how we treat one another. The basis for it is God the Son came down, took a body, and died. That's how you're to live. That's, that's what he's saying. Paul saw the humiliation of the Son of God to the death of the cross as not only a saving act, but an exemplary act, a, a model to be followed, to be desired, a, a pattern to be imitated. So then we ask, who's to follow this model? Who, who imitates this? Who should we expect to be found imitating the Son of God who humbled Himself so low as to take the form of a servant and die the most awful death imaginable in order to glorify God and save sinners? Who follows that pattern? The answer is, anybody who says they follow that one that they are a disciple of Christ, is to follow Him in that pattern. Those who claim to be Christians, who claim to follow Christ, ought to walk in the same way in which He walked, a life of humiliation and holiness and sacrificial love. Those who expect to be glorified with Christ must be the ones to suffer with Christ. Those who claim the saving benefits of His cross must also be willing to take up their cross and follow Him. And if you think about it, it's far less humiliating or far less of a humiliation for us than it was for Him. We're not condescending from the divine nature to take on the form of a servant. We were born in sin. We were, we were born utterly uh, without uh, much use in the grand scheme it's not much for us. It's not a very far condescension. If He was so willing, we ought to be all the more willing to say, if that's the path He took, that's my path. The reality is that the Bible paints the picture of the Christian life in this present age in the shape of a Roman cross. As some have referred to it as, quote, the cruciform life. The life of the cross. The way of the cross is the way of the Christian. The problem, however, is that many in our day want all the benefits of Christianity without the cross. 
A lot of people even claim to be Christians and deny the concept of the, the penal substitutionary atonement that took place on Christ's cross. And still yet, others who might affirm the substitutionary atonement that took place, they want to follow Christianity. Maybe they will affirm the cross of Christ, but they want their Christianity without their own cross. They want all the benefits of Christ's cross while also being able to avoid their own cross. In other words, they want the glory without the suffering. That's the way a lot of people think. I can follow the one who came into infinite condescension and utter humiliation, suffered and died in the place of sinners. I can follow him, but not really suffer, not really be humiliated, not really be humbled. It won't work. That, that's not the Christianity of the Bible. There are even entire theological and, and eschatological systems built around the idea that we, we ought not to suffer in this life. That if we're suffering, we're doing something wrong. That we should strive for a temporal crowning of all of our labors and earthly success with earthly success and notable progress in society and in our own lives. In other words, there, there are entire theological systems set up to present a Christianity that does not follow the pattern established by our Lord. Yeah, He suffered, but we should never suffer. Now, that's, this is not a new phenomenon in our day. It's, a, it's an ancient worldview. It was the worldview... I, it was the worldview of, of those who gathered in the plains of Shinar to build a, a tower into heaven. It was the worldview of the Jews during the time of Christ. They wanted that temporal exaltation and power. It was the worldview of the Greco-Roman Empire. We should not suffer. We should do everything we can to, to promote and prosper ourselves. And sadly, it was the worldview of the saints in Corinth. We've seen that their problem was that they were immature, they were selfish, they lacked love. And at the root of all of these things is their general or basic Corinthian worldview. The Corinthians had forgotten that the way for the Christian is the way of the cross. And so while God displayed His infinite wisdom and power and glory in Christ crucified, the Corinthians come along and they say, well, we will display our wisdom and power and glory without a cross. We can do it without a cross. It took you a cross... We can do it without a cross. As, as we said from the very beginning, this epistle has been called the epistle of the cross. He's bringing the Corinthians back to the cross. Paul writes to bring us back to the cross. And so that's what we see in verses 8 through 13 here. It's as if Paul grabs the Corinthians by the shoulders as they're staring at the world. He grabs them, twists them around, and forces them to look at the cross. To, let, to take a long, hard look at the God-man hanging on the cross. And he says in so many words, and this is what we all have to learn, when you first look, it might be a ghastly scene. And you might want to, to squint or, or turn your eyes a little bit. But if you'll look long enough, that which is at first ghastly will become glorious. And if you keep looking long enough, it will become something of such adoration and pleasure and delight to you that you will then when you must turn away and live you'll say I want to live like that I want to follow that pattern if I told you as Christ carried his cross out of Jerusalem on, his, on the day of his crucifixion and, and maybe we were in the crowd watching him being beaten and mocked and, and chased out of the city as it were carrying his cross beaten to a bloody pulp, dripping blood being mocked and spit upon if I said over there is a stack of crosses. Let's, let's go grab one and follow him. You would say, that's crazy. I don't even like to watch what's happening. But the more that we look, and the more that we realize what he was doing, the more we ought to say, if that's where he's going, give me the cross. I'm following him wherever he goes. That's what he's trying to get them to see. So, the first thing he addresses in verse 8 is what I'm calling the Corinthian fantasy. The Corinthian fantasy. He says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Now first, to understand what he's doing here, we have to understand his tone. We live in a world of, or a, a culture of self-deputized 
tone police officers. Many of which fill the pews of evangelical churches, sadly. We live in a society where most or a lot of people have been carried softly and tenderly from the couch in the guidance counselor's office to the couch in the, the human resource office. And we have been indoctrinated with hours and hours of, of sensitivity training and thinking to, to teach us to avoid certain tones, certain words, certain phrases, certain smells, certain bodily movements. Avoid all of this because you know what? You might offend someone. You might offend somebody. As a matter of fact, in our, in our society now, we've gotten to the point where most of the time it doesn't matter at all what you intend with your words or your tone. The only thing that matters is how another person chooses to receive it. How it made them feel. How, the impression they got that usually comes from all of their sensitivity training. I was trained to receive this this way. It doesn't matter what you meant. Now, I, Christians should not have any part of that. I, I believe the Bible would teach us as Christians that it is our duty to choose to receive the words of our brothers and sisters in the very best, most positive way. Assume the purest of motives because you love them out of love for one another. Just assume, it, it might, you might say, whoa, that, that sounds shocking. I'm just going to assume you meant that in the best possible light. We should be, as we, our church covenant says, slow to take offense. The world says, here, here are a, a list of all of the things that, will, that you can take offense at. Just keep it with you all the time and, and watch for like, a, like a, a word search or a scavenger hunt. Just try to find the thing that offends you. Here's the list. And add to it all you want to. We shouldn't be that way. Slow to take offense. But since we're trained very often to think that way, we, we think that, that love or, or niceness only comes in soft packages. When we read this, we really struggle to, to understand what Paul's doing because it doesn't match what we're used to. So let me read to you some, the words of some commentators. These are not my words. Paul speaks here with, quote, savage irony. He is, quote, powerfully ironic. He turns to irony. Paul drops irony. He speaks with cutting irony. Quote, these words are calculated to hit hard. The cutting edge of his irony was like a surgeon's scalpel. He hurts only in order to heal. He speaks with, quote, irony so biting that some have felt that Paul can scarcely be addressing the church as a whole. They say there, there's no way he's talking to a whole congregation here. The ironic nature should not be missed. Paul sarcastically retorts. He speaks with, quote, scathing irony. Paul offers a stiff rebuke in the form of stinging sarcasm. Now, I, I give you all those quotes so that you can see this is the universal understanding of what Paul is, is doing here, his tone. Paul is being sarcastic. He's being sarcastic. Sarcasm is defined as the use of irony to mock or convey contempt. Sarcasm. Now we hear that and we say, oh, oh, but we should never mock anyone. We should not use any, any of our words to mock anyone. Well, you've got to take it up with the Apostle Paul. Take it up with the prophets of the Old Covenant. Take it up with the Lord Jesus. The Scriptures are littered with this type of sarcastic, cutting irony. A lot of times we don't catch it in, in our English Bibles. We don't catch it because we don't realize the, the, the nuances of what's being said. But I guarantee you when the prophet said, hey, maybe your God's using the bathroom. You want to go call him out of the restroom? He was being sarcastic. He was mocking them. One commentator says this kind of, quote, irony may be, often must be, used to break down pride and arrogance. Paul was good at it. 
It is useful, quote, when the absurdity of a viewpoint or action cannot be made apparent in any other way. So here in these verses, verse 8 and, and verse 10, Paul is being sarcastic. He's being ironic. He's laboring to break down this pride and arrogance in the Corinthians in order to reveal the absurdity of the way that they were acting, the, the absurdity of their viewpoint. There's also a progression. That, that's the tone. He's being sarcastic. But there's also a progression in these words. Already you have all you want. So you're satisfied. You're, you're full. You're, you're, your belly is full. You've slid back from the table. You're saying, please, no more. You, all, you have all you want. Already you have become rich. So not only are you full, but you have extra. You've slid back from the table and you know you've got a cupboard still left to eat. You're rich. And then he says, without us, in our absence, you have become kings. Not just full, not just rich, but wealthy at the top like kings of your society. What is he saying? Think about it. Back in verse 7, he alluded to the fact that their actions made it seem like they had a reason to boast. Why do you boast? As if you did not receive it. So now he's taking that implication. You're boasting. You must think you've got something that you didn't receive. And he's just running with it, sarcastically. They're not really rich. They're not really full. They're not really kings. They're immature, as we've seen. They're fleshly. They're selfish. They are boasting, but in reality, they are the last people that should be boasting. So he's mocking them. <coughs> they were acting like they had all they need, more than enough, acting like they had reached the apex of spiritual life, just like the Laodiceans. Remember in Revelation 3, verse 17, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Same thing is happening here. The Corinthians were living in a fantasy world. They had received grace and they had received gifts from the Spirit. We saw that at the beginning. But they had taken what God had given them and then they began to assume, we've arrived at the consummation. We're at the top. We've made it, guys. Here we are. We did it. Now think about this. Though. There are divisions in the church. We're going to see as we work our way through this epistle. There's an adulterous man in the church. There are lawsuits among them. They don't know how to treat their spouses. They're not concerned about the spiritual well-being of their brethren. They're using the Lord's Supper as a place to stuff themselves while other people are going hungry. Their worship services are chaos. They're questioning the validity of the resurrection from the dead. And yet, they're willing to boast in a few misused, misunderstood spiritual gifts. You see how silly this is. They, they are really an embarrassment to themselves and it's like none of them can see it. Paul's on the outside trying to help them see where they really are and so he mocks them. It's like if we were to say this, we would say, oh yeah, yeah, you've got all you need. Yeah, yeah, you're rich all right. Oh, you, oh you're kings. Yeah, you're kings. He's mocking them. And he, he goes on to say, would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. If you all had fully arrived, if you had reached the consummation, we would be right there with you, wouldn't we? Paul is ironically addressing the idea that the Corinthians were acting as if they had completed their sanctification process and had already arrived at the state of perfection. Now, we understand that that is a state that is only reserved for the future heavenly kingdom. But for the Corinthians, they were thinking, we're already there. We, we've arrived at the consummation. And that's why he says, would that you did reign, that we might share the rule with you. If you had reached that condition, we would be right there with you. That's their fantasy. They're living in a fantasy world. Then in verse 9, he expresses what I'm calling the apostolic reality. The reality is the apostles were not, in fact, reigning with the Corinthians in a heavenly kingdom. It was the, the exact opposite. He says in verse 9, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. That is, he's saying God has 
has placed us apostles on display like we're a theater. By God's appointment, the apostles, and in many ways all of God's ministers, are like a stage. They're a theater where the world can go watch a show. The question is, what is that show? What's, what's playing? He says, he's exhibited us as last of all, like men sentenced to death. So here's the, here's the matinee that you get to watch among the apostles and the ministers of Christ. The title of the, the show, showing, showing today, 4.30, 6.30, 7 p.m., last of all. Men sentenced to death. That's what he's saying. Now there's an imagery here. Last of all, like men sentenced to death. The picture here is that of a Roman army returning from a great victory and they're coming back into the city with a a sort of triumphant parade and all the, the city comes to gather and to watch their great military parade through the seats or through the streets, with, their, with all of the spoils of their victory. In the front of the procession would be more than likely the commanders, the leaders, the, the, the uh, commanding officers of the military. They would be in the front. And then behind them would be all of their mighty soldiers, and they would be marching, many of them uh, beaten, bruised, and bloody, and yet with a, a victorious look of triumph on their faces, their swords bloody, and yet they had won. Some of them may be limping, but they had won the victory. And then behind them, they would be pulling behind them the prisoners of war, the ones that they had taken captive. These would be more than likely made into slaves of the Romans. And then if you followed all the way back at the end of the parade, you would see the ones that have been taken. They're not worthy to be slaves. These ones are going to be marched straight down to be prepared to fight in the Colosseum. These are men sentenced to death. These in the back of the line will be a spectacle for us to watch. We have brought them back almost in a a mocking display to watch them be chewed up, killed, sliced open, eaten by animals for our entertainment. Paul says that God has made His ministers like this. A spectacle of suffering unto death. Last of all. Last in the line. A spectacle to the world and to angels and to men. So while the Corinthians are back in Corinth, glorying in their so-called wisdom, living lives of ease and comfort, boasting in their spirituality, the apostles, who are the chief servants of Christ... And his ministers are like a traveling sideshow spectacle of suffering. That's what he's saying. Would that you did reign. We'd be reigning with you, but we're not. It's the opposite. That's what he's saying. And I do think that there is another point of irony here. And this is where our minds need to be going as we think through this. The Roman victor would have had his chief soldiers in front as a spectacle of their might and power. Those in the very rear were, be, were to be the ones who were ready to die. Because that's the way the world views things. The champions in the front, those suffering in the rear. On the other hand, the Lord Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And He won the victory through suffering unto death. The complete opposite. His chief servants are then made a spectacle of the same kind of victory. A a. Victory through suffering. They take the end of the procession. Christ turns the whole parade around as if it were running backwards. Put the ones in the front who are the ones to suffer unto death. Because this is the way the kingdom of Christ operates. It's completely contrary to the ways of the world. And so rather than being a sign of His being a fake, Paul's suffering was the chief sign of his apostleship. As we said before, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ, the suffering servant. I'm a messenger, a sent one of the one who triumphed through his death. Apostleship and ministerial success is to be measured by the standard of the cross. 
not the standard of the world. This is why Paul says, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in my sufferings. And he would start rolling up his sleeves and say, look at this scar, look at this scar, and look at my back. That's how you know. All my suffering. How is that, how is that a testimony to anything? Because my Lord suffered. And when we watch and think of Him suffering, we say, that's a glorious suffering. And we see it in others and we say, oh, that's glorious. Look at them suffer. Wow, look at them suffer. That's how we ought to think. This is the reality for Christ's apostles, Christ's ministers over against the Corinthians' fantasy. Now, if that weren't enough, going into verse 10... Paul just clearly states what I'm calling the obvious incongruity. So there's their fantasy, then there's the apostolic reality, but then there's this, what did he just show? He just showed these things don't go together. They don't match. The Corinthians were boasting in one thing. Paul and his ministry team are boasting in something completely different. Look at verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in dis- disrepute. So here there's just a very tight back and forth. Verse, verse 8, you all. Verse 9, us all. Verse 10, you, us, you, us, you, us. He's comparing. Everything he says about the Corinthians here is, is more cutting irony. We are fools for Christ. Now, speaking of himself, they're not really fools. What he's saying is by the world's standard, by the way the world judges things, yeah, we are fools. And you are wise in Christ by the same standard, by the world's standard, the wrong standard. Yeah, you you are wise in Christ, but not in a good way. We are weak, he says. Again, in the eyes of the world, we're viewed as weak. According to the wrong standard, we're weak. You are strong according to the same standard in the eyes of the world. Yeah, you do look strong, Corinthians. You look, you look great. You're doing well for yourselves. You are held in honor by who? By the world. Same standard. We in disrepute by the world. There's an incongruity between the two. Paul's point is by the world's standard, the Corinthians are doing great. And by the same standard, the apostles are doing terrible. The apostolic reception and experience is far different from the Corinthian perspective and experience. So who's right and who's wrong? That's that's what he's trying to get them to see. Or the question he's trying to get them to answer. Whose standard should we be using? We can't both be right because we're on opposite ends of this spectrum. The clear implication is that the apostles and ministers of Christ, though they are hated and despised by the world as men sentenced to death, they are the ones who are actually living out the pattern of the cross. While the Corinthians, wise by the world standards, strong by the world standards, honored by the world, they're living by that worldly standard. They're living contrary to the pattern of the cross. It's a clear manifestation of the opposition of the world to Christ. These are two opposing worldviews. They don't don't run together. They're opposites. Two contrary ways that you can go about your life. You cannot have both. You can't live the way of the cross and also the way of worldly glory. You will either despise the shame of the cross in order to be embraced by the world or embrace the world yourself or you will despise and shun the world by embracing the shame of the cross. But you can't do both. That's what he's saying. You all are living one way. We are living a completely different way. Now you tell me who's right here. Who is following the pathway of the suffering servant? And then in verses 11 to 13, he he gives a a detailed autobiography as if he hasn't said enough. He goes even further and, and elaborates upon their sufferings. First, he describes their outward plight. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. Remember, the Corinthians were full. 
You're stuffed. You've eaten so much you can't hardly move. As I write this, my stomach is groaning. My mouth is dry, hungry and thirsty. He tells of their labor. He says, we labor working with our own hands. Now we know Paul was a tent maker. And many in our day have, have tried to sort of glorify this notion of tent making. Paul's tent making is used many times in our day for men to at one and the same time claim to be called into the ministry, but knowing they won't make much money, they go find a lucrative career elsewhere and they just sort of they, they can live at a certain standard but also serve in the church. Uh, tent making for Paul was not the equivalent to selling insurance. It's not the same thing. First, if you pay attention to the biblical narrative, Paul's tent making was more than likely a job he worked at night so that he could minister throughout the day. Else, without that, there's no way to make sense of what he says. I worked this job and they also found me busy with the Word. There had to be some way to make these two coincide. Number two, tent making was a difficult, disgusting, despised form of work. The, the, the job was to take the skins of animals, get them to a point where they could be made into useful materials for tents, and then make those tents. Okay, This is not a pretty job. And thirdly, among the Greeks, to work a manual labor job was the duty of the lowest class of people. So when Paul says, we labor working with our own hands, while we today would say, well, that's good, a man should work with his hands, what he's saying is, we are going out of our way to take the job of the lowest class of people, more than likely working at night, so that we can minister during the day, and when I get done, I still don't have enough to pay for my food and my drink. I'm still hungry and thirsty after all of that. And then he describes how they were treated. They were reviled, persecuted, slandered. Not many people know, know what it feels like to be treated like this, to live every day and see people face to face knowing that they have reviled you, that they've, they persecute you, that they've slandered you. But his response, and the response of the others, he says, when reviled, we bless. When, when they say bad things, we say good things. When persecuted, we endure. We just take it. We passively receive it. When slandered, we entreat. When, when people say wrong things about us, when people lie about us, we respond with gentle, calm, meek speech. Again, for the Greeks, that in itself was a sign that you're not very manly. Somebody says something negative to you, off color to you, they slander you. A real man stands up and says, hey, you don't talk to me that way. I will not let somebody speak of me that way. Paul says, when they did that to us, we entreated. We spoke with meekness and gentleness and kindness. Now when we read this, who does this sound like? Who does it sound like he's describing? Let me give you a hint from 1 Peter. If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten. He, can, he did not threaten, but continued to entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. Christ was Paul's pattern. Christ is to be the pattern for every minister of the gospel. Christ is to be the pattern for every saint. This is how he lived. Paul, all Paul's saying is, do you not see how we lived like him? We were following his pattern. In all of this treatment, in, 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 in all of this autobiography, he's saying, we have chosen the pathway that follows right behind our Lord. And the culmination of all of this the world's view of the Christian ministry. This is a good theme for a pastor's conference. The world's view of the Christian ministry. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Now scum and refuse are similar. We could say in a, in a 
in a pretty way, trash, like the trash of the world. To be more specific, this is the illustration that I think is helpful. Scum is like the stuff that you rinse off of your dishes in the sink. You run, run the water on it and it runs off into the sink. That's scum. Refuse is the stuff that you scrape off of your dishes. Some of you have the off-scouring, the scrapings of the leftovers. It's all going to the same place, but some of it's so disgusting and crusty, it has to be scraped off. You're willing to put elbow grease into it to get this into the trash. The world's view of the Christian ministry. Scum and refuse. Paul says to the world, we ministers are like that stuff that you find in the sink drain plug after you do the dishes. You walk over to the trash can and you try to shake it off in there without getting it on your hands. Or maybe you have a disposal. You want to get it down in there and get it gone, get it out. It's the stuff that makes your disposal stink after a while. That stuff. He says that's the way the world views us. And going back to what he said at the beginning, this was by God's appointment. God has exhibited us this way. These men and all ministers after them live to be a stage upon which the world and the church might see just a little glimpse of the afflictions that fell upon Jesus Himself. Elsewhere He says, always filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. That's, I tend to think that's what He's getting at. A visible display. I didn't see Jesus suffer. You didn't see Jesus suffer. So God has given in every generation a, 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 a category of man. He says, here are these men. Watch them suffer. And that's, you'll get to see a little bit of it. Just a little bit. Now, he describes this. and This is where we have to come back to what he's trying to get them to see. Is he describing defeat? Is he saying, and, you know, and, and obviously we're the losers because of all this. No. Is he saying that the Corinthians had truly arrived while the apostles were failing? No. This is actually the victory that overcomes the world. This is the triumph for the saints. When the world and its views and perspectives, its American dreams, its houses and cars and vacations are shown to be nothing to us. That's the victory. When the world pours contempt upon the saints, it's evidence that the world has become contemptible to us. They don't like that they are contemptible to us, and so they pour it right back upon us. But this is the victory. This is the triumph. This is the evidence that the things which hold so many in chains have no hold on us. The things that the world lives for, we say, that's nothing to me. We've got a different worldview, entirely different. When the world is crucified to us and we to it, we show that we're dead to the world but alive to God. We've been raised to new life in Christ. The resurrected Christ still has power to set men free from this world. And the, the apostles exhibited that victory. We have triumphed. We have risen above the things of the world. Yeah, but you're suffering. Exactly. But that doesn't matter because we've triumphed. We've risen above. The Corinthians not only had their own personal sins of pride, arrogance, selfishness, lack of love, spiritual maturity, we also see there were some theological errors. What some have referred to as an over-realized eschatology. Eschatology is the study of the end times, the last things. We understand from Scripture that we do live in the last days. Those days began with the death and resurrection of Jesus. We believe the kingdom has come. The kingdom has been established. Christ is reigning presently, but He's reigning from heaven. We, we do believe there's more to come. If anybody says there's no more to come, that's heresy. There, there's more to come. So there's an aspect of the kingdom that is already... And then there's an aspect that is not yet. We're waiting for more. As Christians now, we're citizens of Christ's kingdom. But what did he say? The kingdom is within you. 
The kingdom is not coming in ways that can be observed. It's not going to be manifest in a visible earthly form until Christ returns. Then we'll be complete. Then we'll, we'll be the consummation. Then we can say, we have all we want. We're rich. We're kings. We reign on the earth. The Corinthians were living like they had already reached that. Over-realized eschatology. They, they acted like they had arrived. They were complete. They didn't need anything more. We're there. What, what, what's there to look forward to? It, 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 it might be related to their uh, denial of the resurrection. Why does there need to be a resurrection? We've already arrived. We're already there. Now, along with that theological error, it is almost always attached a misunderstanding of the plight of the Christian in the present age. The kingdom is not going to come in its outward visible form until Christ returns. Though we are citizens of heaven, heaven has not yet come down to earth. It will, but not yet. We do have a, a great commission to fulfill, but we have not been commanded to take dominion, to, to, to take over the world's systems in some uh, physical, outward, observable way. We are not the last Adam. Adam was given a dominion mandate. Christ fulfills the dominion mandate when he returns. That's not given to us. We are not commanded to go and take all of the things of the world and conquer them. But with these theological errors, this over-realized eschatology, comes this notion that some Christians at some point ought to expect something besides suffering. And you'll hear people use this type of language, that Christians should dominate. Christians should take dominion. Christians should conquer. Christians should expand. Christians should Christianize the world. That's no different than what the natural man has always desired. That's no different than what the Jews of Christ's day expected. The problem with this is it's simply not the picture that's given to us in Scripture. It's not the pattern set for us by our Lord. The Son of God was born into near poverty, laid in a manger, raised in an obscure village. He had no place to lay His head. He looked to others for regular provisions like food. You read of the, the, the band of women who traveled with him and took care of all their needs because they couldn't. He was arrested, tried unjustly, beaten, crucified. But during his ministry, he said things like, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. He who would save his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember, that the, that, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And then we get to the lives and the ministry of Christ's disciples in the New Testament, and that's what we see. They're living out what Christ said would happen. And Paul even says this in Romans 8.36, For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So we come back to this passage in 1 Corinthians. Paul is simply laying out his experience of that reality. He suffered following the footsteps of our Lord. Now, when we follow in this pattern, when we follow Christ, what does it do? It shows that Christ, by His power, in all who follow Him, or we could say all who follow Christ, by the power of Christ, have won the victory. It shows we have won. When we are able to shun that which the world drools over for the sake of the cross, and in order that we might more closely follow our Lord, what we're proving is we've won the victory. We've gotten outside. We've gotten outside of the atmosphere of this world. We've been raised above that. We're showing this world's not our home. This world's got nothing for us. We're showing that. It's easy to say it. 
every Christian says this world's not my home. What they mean is I'm ready to go to heaven. Well, then live like it. Live like your citizenship is in heaven because it seems like you're really tethered to the world. It seems like the world is your home. But that's what Christ did. That's what the apostles did. The, the testimony of the chief and most useful servants of the Lord down through the ages. Pick up a biography and read it. They all suffered. But they all got to that point where you, when you read them, you think these guys, they didn't, they didn't give a lick about the world. They didn't care at all. They, it was like their mind was in another place. Exactly. Exactly. And that should be our aim. That's what he's trying to get them to see. You see, the world says, here's the, here's the American dream. We can say, my Lord has no use for your pathetic dreams. The world says, now here's the house you need. If you want to be respectable, you need a nice house. We say, my Lord had no place to lay his head. He, he poured contempt upon your house. He, he saw your house and raised you. Foxes have dens. Birds of the air's, air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The world says, here's the degree. Here's the job. Here's the income. Here's the status. Here's where you have to be if you want to be respectable, if you want to make it in the world. And we can say, my Lord has already poured contempt upon everything that you prize. He had none of that, and yet He is the most glorious one who's ever walked the earth. You can't tell me I need that, because He didn't need it. Their treasures aren't our treasures. Their valuables aren't our valuables. Their goals are not our goals. They lift up the most glorious, the most prized, most sought-after thing they have, the greatest things they can contrive and conceive, they lift it all up and they say, here it is, you must have this. And if you'll go after this, and if you'll get this, we will respect you. We will honor you. We'll put you on our shoulders and march you around and you'll be the chief among us. And we look at it and we say, that doesn't mean anything to me. It means nothing to me. My citizenship is not of this world. This is what they don't understand. Our citizenship is not here. What you have means nothing to me. Our eyes ought to be lifted too high to be captivated by the world's nonsense. We can look at them and we can say, you all are building an earthly kingdom. I'm looking to a city in the heavens. This is, this is paltry and puny compared to what I have. And then the world will respond, well then, you lose. You're the loser. And we say, no, I've won. I've won the victory. This is triumph to me, dead to the world, dead to sin, but alive to God. Do you see how Christ's pattern, Christ's suffering unto glory, Christ's triumph at the cross sets the pattern for us? That's our pattern. We are to aim for the cruciform life, the life of the cross. Now, this doesn't mean we go looking for suffering. We, we try to get ourselves beat up and hurt and, and persecuted. But we also, we just simply, all we have to do is not set our sights where the world sets its sights and it will come after us. When the light shines in the darkness, the darkness gets angry. That's all you have to do. It'll bring us into conflict with the, in the world when we live this way. Just like it did with Christ. Christ didn't go looking for persecution or suffering. He just lived contrary to the ways of the world. He just lived the way he lived and they hated it. Now John MacArthur is famously hated for saying, quote, we don't win down here. And this is derided by those who expect a golden age of Christian prosperity in a Christianized world before the return of Christ. And they say, no, we do win down here we, because we conquer the world. We make it Christian. Well, I would argue that maybe there's a middle ground. The pattern of the cross. We do win down here because Christ has already won the victory. But our victory doesn't look like the world's type of victory. Our victory is not conquering the world. Our victory is dying to the world. Our victory is showing that the world and its desires are passing away. The ones who conquer are the ones who hold fast their faith until the end. 
Sadly, very often Christians are found buying into the world's system, the world's way of thinking. Typically, our mindset is this. Go as far as you can with the world. Stay in that stream as far as you can. Pursue the world's values as far as possible while being able to maintain some visage of Christianity. Keep, keep as much Christian residue as you need to keep to make a credible profession of faith in today's society. Now, the problem with that, obviously, is that what is credible in the society changes. The goalposts are often shifting. And so it tends to sound like this. As long as the culture, or even the Christian culture, as long as they think I'm a Christian, I'm still being pretty radical for Jesus, as long as they think I'm a Christian. But again, the, the culture standards shift. The, the goalposts of, of much of evangelicalism has shifted. Christian culture moves its goalposts. Think about the Sabbath. There was a time not long ago when it would be abs- absurd for a professing Christian to not honor the Christian Sabbath. If you found a person working on the Lord's Day, you would say, that's not a Christian. But now in our day, it's completely shifted. Evangelicals have thrown off the commandments of the Lord. Or you can say, well, I I can still hold a fairly credible profession and break the commandments of God. The goalposts shift. That's what we think. Go as far as I can with the world while still being able to maintain a credible profession, and then our Christianity becomes a hollowed-out shell of real, vibrant, biblical, cross-shaped Christianity. It's nothing more than a useless, powerless, anemic, verbal profession that has no influence on the culture at all. Nobody sees anything different. Most of them are in bed right now. They don't care if you're at church. They're on the golf course right now. They don't care if you're at church. They don't know. They're not interested. That's not, that's not a boast for you. If they're not doing those things, they might be in a church just because that's what we do. That doesn't mean anything. It's just verbal. But we see here the apostolic and the biblical mindset says, you go as far as you possibly can with and for Christ. You give yourself up to the values of the cross. You pour yourself out for the kingdom of God. Seek first His kingdom, foremost and utmost, and just let God take care of the rest. That's the Christian mindset. We would tell Paul, you know, if you want to be a good tent maker, you'd advertise this way and you'd change your hours a little bit and you'd get some, get some good uh, business cards to hand out. And you could really make something of yourself. And Paul was saying, I don't live for tent making. Tent making. I live for the kingdom. I'm just doing this to to try to get by so that I don't have to take money from this church. Let the Lord take care of the rest. What's the problem? Well, the problem is that's going to put you in direct opposition to the the whole flow of our society. And it will eventually put you in the crosshairs of the world and, and even of your own flesh. Our flesh doesn't like this. When you live this way, it puts us into scenarios where you have to say to a boss man, yeah, I'll do all of this, but, but I'm not doing that because that's dishonest. And I can't do it. Fire me if you have to, but I can't be dishonest. Why? Well, because God said you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. I'm not willing to sacrifice my marriage or my children to make a few extra bucks. I'm not voting for that candidate because that would be a tacit approval of infanticide. I can't do it. Why? Well, because God said you shall not murder. I'm not calling you a woman because you're a man. That would be slander. Why can't you do that? Because God said you shall not bear false witness. Yes, sir. I, I will work these six days. I will not work that day. Well, why not? Because God said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You see, if, if, if you buy into the Christianity of the Bible, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you. Remember our Lord said in Luke 14, which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? Now a lot of professing Christians today have sat down and counted the benefits. They've counted the rewards. Do I want to be a Christian? Well, I don't know. Do I want to go to heaven? Do I want to get out of hell? Right? We, we count the benefits 
Christ never said count the benefits. He said count the cost. Count the cost. He said, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You can't. It don't work, as we've seen. Opposing worldviews. Why can't we be his disciple? Because this is what he did. He renounced all that he had. The man Jesus laid down his life long before he died on the cross. He was already dead to the world. Took upon himself the form of a servant, born in the likeness of men. Not the, not the form of a, a, a mighty king among men, but a servant. Could it be that some here have bought into a Christianity that promises a crown without a cross? That's a dangerous place to be. I pray that the Lord will open the eyes of people who think they're Christians and for some reason their Christianity never puts them at odds with the world, ever. Specifically, the young people. I wish that you young people would stop looking at the world. Stop listening to what the world says. The world says, here's, here's the goalpost, here's where you need to be. Here's the standard. Here's what you need to be happy. Here's what you need to be respectable. Here's what you need to survive in the present economic climate. That's what the world says. Okay, close off your ears to that. They don't know. They, they, they're citizens here. We're not citizens here. We don't think like them. Close off your ears to all of that. As Jesus would say, the Gentiles seek after all these things. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and everything that you need will be added to you. But when you seek the things of the world, you think, I'll, I'll get all the stuff I need first. You don't get God. You, you can't have it both ways. That's what he's trying to get the Corinthians to see. Look at the cross. Look at the God-man dying for sinners. That's our pattern. Fix your eyes there until it becomes beautiful and you'll see all of this other stuff doesn't mean anything to us. It shouldn't. Well, let's pray that God would help us.